0: These are the words of the preacher, who I am convinced is Solomon writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 2, and these are the words that he pens. The words of the preacher. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God abides forever. You may be seated. There are two main divisions on your outline this morning if you're taking notes. I want to take just a brief look at the man first of all, and then we'll spend the significant remaining portion of our time talking about his message. The man and then his message. Let's look at the man first, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, strictly speaking, friends, this book, Ecclesiastes, is anonymous. There's no personal name that is attached to it. And since Scripture is silent on the matter, we cannot be, I cannot be infallibly certain in identifying the preacher as Solomon. Though I think the attempts to discredit Solomon's authorship are woefully lacking. In any event, this book claims to be the wisdom that ultimately comes from the one shepherd. We find that in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So all the wisdom that comes here comes from the one shepherd. God is communicating to his people through the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm convinced that Solomon is the human pen, God is the divine author. Church tradition holds that Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, was indeed the author. I believe Solomon wrote Proverbs and Song of Songs earlier in his life, and then wrote Ecclesiastes in his old age, looking back on his life. Kind of like hindsight's 2020. I think that's exactly what we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think Solomon has lived his life, he's seen the futility of life under the sun, he's tried everything, he's taken the power cord of his life and he's plugged it into every outlet under the sun and come up with the reality that everything is futile. And now, now he's speaking about it. Solomon walked humbly with God in his younger years. We find that in 1 Kings chapter 3. Remember, Solomon was the one who asked God for wisdom. Give me wisdom of heart, of everything that I could request of you. I want to be wise. Solomon walked with God humbly in his younger years, but his heart was turned away to the false gods of his many wives later, and he became a miserable man as God removed his hand of blessing from Solomon. If you want to find out more about this character, just read 1 Kings. Uh, You can pick up in chapter 3, read through about chapter 11, and you'll have a good snapshot of the life of King Solomon. But I think Ecclesiastes is the dramatic autobiography of Solomon recounting the difficult lessons that he learned as he tried to live life apart from God. And so if Proverbs reveals the wisdom of Solomon... Then Ecclesiastes reveals the foolishness of Solomon. Having said that, again, I think that Solomon was writing later in his life. And in order to see your foolishness, you have to have some wisdom. And so I think Solomon is recounting some foolish years in his life, but he's doing so from a position of wisdom. And so now he can speak into the events of his life. Look at how Solomon speaks about himself He opens, saying, the words of the preacher, the preacher. The word preacher in Hebrew is koheleth, koheleth. Koheleth designates a leader who speaks before an assembly of people. A leader who speaks before an assembly of people. In short, koheleth means a public teacher. That's the position that Solomon is putting himself in here as he opens his book that of a public teacher. He's a learned man who believes that he can now speak authoritatively on the issues of life. The word Ecclesiastes, the title of this book is the Greek transliteration of the word Koheleth. Koheleth in the Hebrew, Ecclesiastes in the Greek. Ecclesiastes literally means the one who speaks in the ecclesia. You'll know if you've uh, uh, been around any uh, any any church teaching teaching about the local church that ecclesia has to do with the church. Ecclesia is the gathering together, the assembling together of the church, and so Ecclesiastes literally means the one who speaks in the ecclesia. Matter of fact, you can see the word ecclesia in Ecclesiastes. So, Koheleth is a title or a nickname for someone who speaks in church. In a word. Solomon is a preacher. He is a preacher. And so he refers to himself the words of the preacher. What follows are the words of the preacher. But then he identifies himself further as the son of David. The son of David. If preacher is Solomon's title, the son of David points to Solomon's family ties. This is his family. Solomon is in the messianic line. He is qualified as a king. But he wasn't first in line because he wasn't the first of David's sons, so he's an unlikely king. But he is the king that God in his wisdom and sovereignty chose. We know that Solomon built the temple. And that Jesus comes from his messianic line. He is of the Son of David, or he is the Son of David. Now, there's tons that could be said here. A matter of fact, a sermon upon sermon upon sermon could be preached just on this short phrase, the Son of David. But that's not the scope of our our study. Third, Solomon tells us that he is king in Jerusalem. This is his position, preacher is his title. The son of David is his family lineage, king in Jerusalem. This is his position. This is his position. And I think the thing that Solomon wants us to understand here is that he has no limitations. He has no restraints. And so therefore, we need to listen to his authoritative message. Why would Solomon begin with his resume? Albeit short here, and he doesn't elaborate a ton for us, but why would Solomon begin with his resume? Well, I think the answer to that question is relatively simple. You see, many times you listen to people speak, or you have an interest in listening to people speak, or what they have to say, because of where they've been, or what they've experienced, or what they've accomplished. We want to know that the people that we listen to know what they're talking about. That they speak from a position of authority. And so Solomon wants us to be confident that he knows what he's talking about. He's at the top of the ladder as far as power is concerned. He's got prestige and money. All the things under the sun are available to him. And so now he can speak authoritatively on whether or not they actually satisfy And so I think Solomon begins this way, preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, to just arrest our attention that he is a trustworthy figure, that he can be listened to. That is the man. And again, if we were going to do a character sketch or if we were going to do a, a study on the life of Solomon, pages and pages and pages of information is available to us. Tons and tons of ink has been spilled writing about the life of Solomon. That's not the purview in the purview of our, of our study here. But Solomon does want us to know a few things about him. He is the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. So what is this man's message? What is it that he is trying to communicate to us? If you have your Bible, look at verse 2 there. This is Solomon's message. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. After identifying himself as the author, Solomon declares most emphatically... That everything is vanity or everything is futile. As a matter of fact, so emphatic is he in his discovery that he uses this word vanity five times in one short verse. I mean, Solomon is writing as an apologist here. In other words, he's constructing a defense or he's making an argument. He's addressing a public group of people, the audience of his teaching, whose view of life is likely confined to the horizons of this world, just like his at one time was. It's very likely that Solomon is addressing a group of people as the public teacher, as the preacher, whose worldview does not rise beyond the horizon of this world. In other words, they're just living in light of all they know, see, can understand of life under the sun. And so Solomon meets them on their own playing field, and from there proceeds to challenge them concerning the inherent vanity they see, feel, and experience. And I would suggest to you that verse 2 here, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all of vanity, everything is vanity. I would suggest that this is actually a literary bomb. There's there's an incredible amount of shock value in these 12 words. I mean, Solomon is trying to arrest our attention from the onset. I mean, if you want your readers to wake up and to pay attention and to stop pretending about what life in the real world is really like, then your opening statement looks a whole lot like Solomon's opening statement in verse 2. We have to ask ourselves. What is the meaning of this word? What is Solomon trying to teach us when he says, Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, crucial to our understanding of the rest of the book is the meaning of this very word translated in many of your Bibles as vanity. As a matter of fact, this word appears some 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And so, it's vitally important that we have a correct definition. That we have a correct working understanding of what this word means. The word translated "vanity" in your Bible there—it's the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-V-E-L, havel—would be the transliteration there. The English Standard Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the King James Bible—they translate havel as vanity. Perhaps you have the Holman Christian Standard Bible on your lap this morning. If that's the case, then that translation translates the word futility. But the NIV translates this word meaningless. Meaningless. So we have futility, we have vanity, we have meaningless. It's very important that we zero in on what this word really means. And I would submit to you that havel is a difficult word to define. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew language is incredibly complex. But I want to suggest to you that the Hebrew word havel, translated meaningless in some of your Bibles, specifically if you have the NIV, I want to submit to you that that is not the best translation of this word. Meaningless is not the best translation of the Hebrew word havel. I don't think Solomon is saying that everything is meaningless. I don't think that's what he's saying. If meaningless was the best translation, then statements like this in uh, in Ecclesiastes 4.13, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. Or like this statement, better is a poor person, wise in youth, than an old and foolish king. Or perhaps this statement, better, better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. Or or perhaps this statement here, a good name is better than precious ointment. Or this one, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. It's better for a man to hear a rebuke of a wise man than to hear the song of fools. And better is the end of a thing than its beginning. What's what's my point here? Did you hear the common word throughout all those passages in Ecclesiastes? Better is, better than, better is this than that. And so clearly, if something is better than something else, then meaningless does not define everything. If something is better than something else, then clearly meaningless is not the best definition of everything. But yet, Solomon says... Everything is havel. And so I would submit to you that meaningless is not the best translation of that word. Havel translates a word which includes the ideas. So let me just uh, think about a a blank coloring page here for a moment. Let me just put some color on that page for you as to what this word havel means. It includes the ideas of brevity, unreliability, frailty, futility, Lack of discernible purpose, emptiness. In a number of passages in the Old Testament, it's it's defined as idle even. It has the idea of something transitory, something fleeting, something unsatisfactory, something useless, something uh, that, that can be described in terms of a mist or smoke or breeze or breath. Maybe that'll color in for you just a little bit about what Solomon is saying here. Let me me show you this word Havel in a number of other passages. Why don't you stay there in Ecclesiastes 1, but turn over to Psalm 39 here for just a second. Psalm 39. Find verses 5 and 6. 39 verses 5 and 6. The psalmist writes this, he says, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. There's the word, havel. Surely all mankind stands as a breath. It goes on, and he says, "Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely nothing." There's the word again, havel. Nothing. They are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Look at verse 11, Psalm 39, verse 11. Just bounce down a few verses here. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere, here's the word again, breath, havel. Turn over to Psalm 144. Psalm 144. We see it again in Psalm one forty four verses three and four. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you would think of him? Man is a breath, Havel. His days are like a passing shadow. Don't turn here, but let me just give you a few others here. How about Proverbs thirteen eleven? Wealth gained hastily, Havel. There it is. Hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Or how about this? This is a well-known passage probably to all of us. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Some of your translations say beauty is fleeting, Hevel. That's the word. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so as we, as we look at this word, if you were to do a word study of the Hebrew word Hevel, you find the idea of breath or nothing or hastily or vain or futility. That which is here and then quickly gone, like a vapor, like a breath, like a mist. I think the Apostle James picks up on this when he says, what is your life? Your life is like a mist that appears for a little while and then quickly vanishes. And so I would submit to you, friends, that Solomon, in my estimation, is not saying meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Rather, what I think he is saying is this, a wisp A vapor, a puff of wind, a mere breath, nothing that you can get your hands on, all is like a vapor. A wisp, a puff of wind, a mere breath, nothing that you can get your hands on, everything that's elusive, it's all a vapor. Solomon doubles and redoubles this bitter word, havel, which actually might be a parody of another superlative. We see vanity of vanities here in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. We see another superlative in the Word of God, holy of holies. Well, if holy of holies is the most holy place, then vanity of vanities is the most empty of realities. It's the most empty of realities. If Solomon has this in mind then utter emptiness stands in mute contrast to utter holiness. Well, Solomon gives us the scope of vanity here. One has to ask, "Does, does this mean that Solomon has concluded that God himself or the pursuit of godliness is futility? Is the pursuit of God vanity? Well, here's one of the challenges in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is not quick to answer this question for us. matter of fact, he seems content to let us take a hard look at the world around us before he gives us the answer. Having said that, he does drop a hint very early on. As a matter of fact, in our text for next week in verse 3, if you're not already back at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, go ahead and find your way back there. And look at verse 3. This is where we'll open next week here. Solomon says, What does man gain? By all the toil at which he toils under the sun. And so we see the scope here of Solomon's thinking. He's speaking about everything that exists in this world. He's not talking about uh, talking about a walk with God or the pursuit of holiness or the pursuit of Christ likeness. That's another sermon, another day. Solomon is speaking about life in this world. Life under the sun, all of it, he says, is vanity. Matter of fact, that is a key phrase here, under the sun. Solomon will use that that phrase a number of times. That phrase, under the sun, is what the New Testament calls the world. The world. That's why John tells us, "Don't, don't pursue the things of the world. They're fleeting You've heard me say this before, and it bears repeating. If it rots, rusts, or collects dust, don't give your life to it. If it rots, rusts, collects dust, let me add another one, or dies, don't give your life to it. It's futile, like a breath, like a puff of wind. It's here and then gone. Solomon will use this phrase, under the sun, some 30 times in these 12 short chapters here he makes it clear that the vantage point uh, that he is making his statements from are confined to this world. I was thinking this week in my study of what is it? How do we define it when people seek to live it up? To find ultimate satisfaction, significant joy, meaning, purpose, fulfillment under the sun. What do we call that? What do we what do we refer to that as? We call that secularism. Secularism is defined by an indifference to or a rejection or an exclusion of religion or religious considerations. In other words, I'm just going to live my life all the days that I have and then I'm going to die. And I know I'm going to die, so I'm just going to live it up now. That's secularism. That's just living life under the sun. Simply put, secularism is life without God. Life without God. Is this not where our culture is heading with relentless speed? I mean, our culture is tumbling head over foot, foot over foot. I mean, it's just clawing, clamoring with relentless speed down this lane of secularism. Our culture is indifferent to God at best and hates God at worst. We have been vigorously trying to scrub every remaining particle of God from every public square for quite some time now. And so, what Solomon is laboring to show in Ecclesiastes is that the pursuit of secularism, be it theoretical, there is no God, or pragmatic, that's just, I don't care about God, it all ends in futility the same. It all ends in futility. It's like a grand mirage. It looks like there's something out there in front of you that is of substance. But as you get closer, it quickly fades away. Friends, if you're looking for lasting satisfaction, fulfillment, significant purpose, meaning, security under the sun, you will come up empty-handed and empty-hearted every single time. Save none. Every single time. I mean, here is Israel's most powerful king, and yet he feels powerless to control his own life. He's unable to control his own work. He's unable to control what happens after he dies. He's unable to prevent his own death, as a matter of fact. And so here's a fellow surrounded by more success, more opulence, and more pleasure than any one person could ever imagine, imagine, and yet here is Solomon at the rock bottom of his life. Vanity of vanities. It's like, and then it's gone. It's the closest thing to zero. It's something that you can't grasp. It's like trying to grab a handful of sand at the beach. And so Solomon begins this spiritual odyssey in the quagmire of emptiness, and he flounders there. And then he writes for us later in his life, looking back, teaching us lessons, here's what I've learned, and it begins with admitting his empty condition, nothing satisfies Friends, I don't think Solomon wants you to try to duplicate his pursuit of significance in life. Instead, I think he wants you to learn from his relentless search for significance and its being found in God, which you've got to wait until chapter 12 to get. He doesn't want you to try to duplicate his life. He wants you to learn from his mistakes. Outside the town of Oban, On the west coast of Scotland stands a remarkable building. It overlooks the bay and, viewed from a distance, rises colosseum like in its grandeur. It's floodlit at night and its appearance is as unusual as it is unexpected. But sightseers, travelers who make their way to it in the full light of day must prepare themselves for absolute discouragement and disappointment. Why is that? Well, the building... Many windowed and wonderfully symmetrical is nothing but a mere shell. There's no gazing in the windows. As a matter of fact, there is no inside. It is and always has been simply a circular wall. Its only practical value has been that it once gave building workers employment in the offseason. And so this edifice now stands a century old, named after its builder, McKegg's Folly. The word folly is derived from the French word foolishness. Many of these types of buildings litter the British countryside. Others can be found in France. Most of them date from the 18th century to the early 19th century. These varied constructions are usually impressive and expensively built in the classical Gothic style. I mean, they're beautiful buildings. They have one thing in common. They were constructed to impress but each one of them serves no real function. They're useless, they're empty. Follies they are, and foolish were their wealthy builders. Throughout the ages, men and women, great and small, rich and poor, well-known and unknown, have built such follies. Sometimes, as in the case of McKegg, they have been physical constructions. Always they have been attempts of one individual or another to give his life or her life significance the implication that there must be more to life than the mere living of it this is foolishness foolishness you see the book of ecclesiastes is a tale of searching of experimenting of groping for significance As a matter of fact, there's four primary places that Solomon is going to search, relentlessly search for significance and lasting meaning. He'll search for it in education or in knowledge, in wisdom, in what he knows, trying to accumulate and to amass wisdom. He'll search for it in work, in what he does, in how he performs. He'll search for it in pleasure, in every facet of pleasure. And he'll search for it in success. Education, work, pleasure, and success. Surely one of these, in one of these, he'll find what he's looking for. Or will he? Or will he? Well, in what ways is Solomon applying vanity to life under the sun? In what ways is, is Solomon speaking about Hevel as it pertains to life? Remember, I would suggest to you that Havel is not best defined as meaningless. I think it is much better defined as a breath or a puff of air that is quickly here and then gone. It's transitory, it is of no lasting significance. And so Solomon applies that to life. And here are a few ways that I think that fleshes itself out. I'll write this down if you're taking notes. A there on your outline is life under the sun is ephemeral. Ephemeral. If you don't want to try to spell that, just write short in your blank. Life under the sun is ephemeral or it is short. You know, a fun activity for children is playing bubbles. My kiddos loved bubbles growing up. Truth be told, I love bubbles. Why? Because I'm a big kid. I love bubbles. They're hours of cheap entertainment on a summer day, but there's a reality about bubbles that matches our own life. And that reality is that bubbles don't last long. As quick as they're blown, they're carried away and they pop and vanish. Life under the sun is like that it's ephemeral, it's short. It's here and then it's gone. It's a wisp, it's a vapor, it's a puff of wind. It's a mist that quickly appears and then vanishes. If you talk to someone in their latter years, they'll often tell you that time has flown by. When you're young, it seems as if the days tarry forever and ever and ever. The days are endlessly long, but year after year, it seems as though the speed of life clips away at an ever-increasing pace. The Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius once said, Time is a short, as a sort of river, a passing of events, and a strong current. No sooner is a thing brought to sight than it is swept away to another place. That's what life is like. Just swift current. We see something there in the water and then it's quickly already downstream. The book of Ecclesiastes is like a reality check on what it means for our lives to be a mist and the wind. Hear one moment and then swiftly carried away in the next. No endeavor will bring lasting fulfillment or satisfaction. Life is short. You're here and then you're gone. You live and then you die. Secondly, life under the sun is elusive. It's elusive or hard to grasp. It's hard to get your hands on. Most of us enjoy celebrating birthdays. Consider the momentary cloud of smoke, that puff of smoke after a candle on a birthday cake is blown out. Well, life under the sun is very similar. Try and capture that smoke from the extinguished candle and put it in your pocket for later. It doesn't work. You can't save it. As quick as it's here, it's gone. It's elusive. It's hard to grasp. The cloud of smoke, it's real. It's a physical thing. Yet at the same time, it just quickly dodges your fingers as soon as your fingers get to it. As a matter of fact, the, the small puff of wind that just bringing your hand near that puff of smoke uh, brings makes that puff of smoke go away. I mean, just the mere trying to get it is enough to make it vanish. It's hard to grasp. Ecclesiastes teaches us. That life seems to elude our grasp in terms of finding lasting significance under the sun. See, life under the sun is enigmatic. It's enigmatic. For those of you that don't want to try and spell that, you can write perplexing. Perplexing. Why does it rain on the day that you forgot your umbrella? Why do the young and healthy die suddenly? Why For the love of Pete, does it seem like every checkout line in the grocery store moves quicker than the one you've chosen? Why does traffic seem to be moving so slow on that morning that you have an important meeting? Why does the neighbor's dog, who was quiet all morning, decide that he wants to bark when you put your baby to bed? Life makes no sense. Why does the Wi Fi stop working when a critical email needs to be sent? I mean, friends, are there not just times in life, significant times, where life just does not make sense? It's life under the sun. Life is enigmatic, it's perplexing. And then, lastly, here, life under the sun is exasperating. It's exasperating or frustrating. Life is ephemeral, it's elusive, it's enigmatic, and it's exasperating. Or it's short, it's hard to grasp, it's perplexing, and it's frustrating. I'm a cyclist, and when prolonged periods of poor weather rest overhead, or when the winter months convene, I'm reduced to the excruciating reality of a stationary bike. And there are only a few things in life that I hate, but riding a stationary bike is without question on the short list. Not a whole lot of things that I just, just grit at me, but riding a bike that goes nowhere is one of those things. sure, it helps maintain fitness when I can't ride outside, but it's drudgery at best and it feels like death at worst. For those of you who run on a treadmill, you feel my pain. And when I look down and see the odometer says that I've ridden 25 miles, while in all reality I've actually gone nowhere, that is frustrating, makes me want to bang my head on the cinder block wall in the basement. I've gone nowhere. For all the work, for all the effort, for all the labor, it's produced nothing lasting. In terms of distance, in terms of ground covered, well, life without God is like being on a stationary bike or a treadmill. And Solomon is going to begin to unpack this reality in our text for next week. I mean, just let me, let me give you kind of a flavor of where we're going. Solomon says, nothing is gained for our toil. Generations come and generations go. Interpretation, you're going to die. People die He says the sun rises and the sun sets day after day, year after year. It's the monotony of life. It just keeps on going. Everything seems to be the same. He says the wind flows a repetitive course and it blows and it swirls over the earth. Rivers flow into the sea but they're never full. Everything is wearying. Verse 8. What has been will always will be, verse 9. Nothing is new, verse 10. And then everything in the end is forgotten, verse 11. It's frustrating. It's discouraging. It's disheartening. Such is life that is lived under the sun without God. And that's the whole point that Solomon is driving home here. And Solomon's going to just let that soak in. He's going to let that reality soak in for a little while before he answers the question of vanity. Where is meaning found? Where is significance found? Where is joy and fulfillment found? Well, Solomon's going to let us sit here in life under the sun for a number of chapters before he ever dawns that conversation. Well, friends, let me close this morning by just saying that praise be to God, vanity does not have the last word. Praise be to God that vanity does not have the last word. I mean, we catch glimpses of an eternal perspective throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, which that is one of the hopes of our study, is to encourage our congregation to be growing in an eternal perspective. Don't just live life under the sun. Live for him who died, for you. Live for him. We catch glimpses of this eternal perspective throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but it comes even clearer again at the end. Vanity does not have the last word. As a matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. And then here's his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Well, to fear God and keep his commandments isn't just the beginning, but it's also the end. It is the goal of our existence, but in order to know and enjoy God properly, first we have to see the emptiness of life without Him, becoming thoroughly disillusioned with everything that this world has to offer without Him. But thanks be to God through Christ that these words have the final word. Listen to Jesus here, John chapter 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. Do you know this Jesus? Or are you just living life under the sun, trying to infuse meaning, significance, purpose, joy, satisfaction to your life in all that you can see, feel, taste, and touch? In the end, if that's the case, it'll be gone as quick as you get it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. What a challenging reality that is presented before us here. Lord, thank you uh, that life under the sun is not all that there is. Uh, Thank you that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is not the final word. Thank you, Jesus, that you came, that we might have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. I pray if there's any person this morning listening who doesn't know you, Jesus, in a saving way, that they've not been made a new creation in Christ, that they've not died to themselves, repented of their sin, and turned to Christ as their only hope and the only true source of meaning, purpose, fulfillment, security, joy, and satisfaction. God, I pray that you would arrest their hearts, that they would see the futility of their ways, and that they would trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.